0: glad that you're here today. Thanks so much. If you're a guest, uh, I want to give you an extra special welcome. Uh, If you have a Bible, I want you to take it, and I want to hear your pages turning to the New Testament book of Romans, and when you find the book of Romans, I want you to find chapter 3, because that's where we're going to spend our time together today, because as we come to Romans chapter 3, and by the way, if you're a guest with us, again, we're so glad that you're here. What we're doing in this message series called Unashamed is we're going Through the book of Romans, not verse by verse, but chapter by chapter. Basically, what we're doing is we're taking the time to focus on the major theme of each chapter in the book of Romans. There are 16 chapters. And as I mentioned when we began, there are a handful of those chapters that will require, will require more than one message. But for the most part, we're going to be looking at a single message from each chapter. And as we come to Romans chapter three today, what we have is uh, the opportunity to understand a significant truth about ourselves and a significant truth about God. Because we always make the public reading of Scripture a part of our service, and we have a lot to talk about today, we're going to dive right in. So if you've got your Bible open to Romans 3 and you're able, go ahead and stand together with me for the reading of Scripture And while we're gonna be looking at several verses in the book of Romans chapter three today for our scripture reading time, we're just going to read Romans chapter three verses 21 through 24 so you follow along as I read. This is a powerful passage of scripture. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask that God would bless the reading and the hearing of his word. What we're going to really be doing today is echoing the words of that song we sang earlier that went, hope has a name, his name is, say it with me, Jesus. That's what we're going to really focus on together today. If you were here last week or you joined us online, you know we spent our time talking about... Hypocrisy, And I told you that hypocrisy is not failing to live up to a certain standard. Hypocrisy is doing something wrong in my life and then turning around and condemning someone else for doing the same thing. Another way to look at it would be to say, hypocrisy is condemning in others what I overlook in myself. And we talked about this because in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul used self-righteous Jews as an example of hypocrisy because so many of them believe that because they were God's chosen people, the Jews were God's chosen people, the Bible is clear about that, but many of them believe that because they were God's chosen people, that they were somehow exempt from living a life of obedience to God's instructions and God's commands. And that's something that Paul really points out in Romans chapter two, verses 17 through 24. Now I'm going to put those words up on the screen from Romans chapter two, verses 17 through 24. And I'm going to tell you, we didn't read this passage of scripture last week because last week when we came together, what we did was we focused our attention on the truths or principles that Paul gives in Romans chapter two to help us avoid making the mistake of living hypocritical lives. But those words or those truths rather are basically based on these words. These words are a foundational reason why Paul spent his time talking to us about how to avoid hypocrisy. Look look at what he writes. He says, what about you? This, by the way, is in the easy-to-read version, not the NIV version. What about you? You say you are a Jew. You trust in the law and pride of the claim to be close to God. You know what God wants you to do, and you know what is important because you have learned the law. You think you are a guide for people who don't know the right way, a light for those who are in the dark. You think you can show foolish people what is right, and you think you are a teacher for those who are just beginning to learn. You have the law, and so you think you know everything and have all truth. You teach others, and here it is. So why don't you teach yourself? You tell them not to steal, but you yourself steal. You say they must not commit adultery but you yourself are guilty of that sin. You hate idols but you steal them from their temples. You are so proud that you have God's law but you bring shame on God by breaking his law. As the scriptures say, people in other nations insult God because of you and that friends is the great danger of hypocrisy in the Christian faith, right? We 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 purport to have this faith in God and this righteousness in our lives, and yet we don't live any different from the rest of the world. And that's what was happening here, and that's why Paul wrote those words, people in other nations insult God because of you. And that's really the foundation, as I mentioned earlier, for why Paul spent the time that he did in Romans chapter 2, giving us some truths and principles about how to avoid hypocrisy in our lives Because that was a very big problem for some of the Jews in this church. It was a problem because many of them put their confidence, when it came to their relationship with God and their standing with God, they put conf- their confidence in their heritage as God's people, which gave them a special relationship with God. And as I said earlier, there's, this, was, this was a reality. The Jews were God's chosen people. They did have a unique heritage before God. In fact, look at these words that Moses said in uh, Deuteronomy chapter seven and verse six. And I've told you before, Deuteronomy was basically one long extended farewell message that Moses gave to the Jews, to the Israelites before He was to die, and Joshua was to lead them finally into the promised land. And he makes it really clear about the reality of who the Jews are in this verse. He says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. That's who they were. The Bible makes that really, really clear. But what we have to understand is the reason why the Jews were God's chosen people. And the reason why the Jews were God's chosen people was because from eternity past, literally from eternity past, God knew that he was going to need to send the Messiah into the world. Let me say it like this. God knew that he was going to need to send a Savior into the world to save people from their sin, the sin that separates them from God, the sin that separates us from God. And that's why the Old Testament tells us the story of how God created, how God distinguished, and how God preserved the Jewish people so that when the time was right, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior of the world, would come into the world through them. And a huge part of God distinguishing the Jews was giving them the law which called them to a higher standard of life and a higher standard of living. Now we don't have time today to talk in detail about the law except to say that it was, and this is so simplistic, it was a very specific part of the word of God given to Moses by God that contained a comprehensive set of guidelines so that the behavior of the Jews would not just be different from the rest of the world, the behavior of the Jews would also reflect their status as God's chosen people. In other words, the law was given to set them apart with regard to their behavior. But in the end, in spite of that, in the end, Many of the Jews believe they had a secure relationship with God based solely on their heritage, regardless of what their attitude was toward the law, regardless of whether or not they were obedient to the law. And so when we open our Bibles to Romans chapter three, which is where we all are today, what Paul does is he makes it clear this is this really, in, in, in a sense, this is the singular message of Romans 3. He makes it clear that no one is right with God on their own. No one. No exceptions. In fact, look at these words from Romans chapter three and verse nine, and I want you to read them with me. Let me hear your voices. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. And this is what we have to understand from Romans chapter 3. In other words, what Paul is saying is that everyone, everyone say everyone, everyone stands guilty before God because of their sin. I'm talking about everyone from the most reprobate sinner you can think of to the most moral and upright lawkeeper you can think of. Everyone on their own, based solely on their own merit, stands guilty before God because of sin, everyone. And after establishing that truth in the first part of Romans three, in particular in verse nine that we just saw, Paul continues to drive it home, drive it home, drive it home. We see that in Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 20. And if there's one sentence or phrase that could capture the reality or could summarize the reality of what Paul is trying to communicate in Romans chapter three and verse 20, it would just be these three words or four words. No one is good, no one, no one is good. See, this, this, this is sometimes a hard message for people to hear. I've had lots of conversations with people over the years who wanted to debate me on this reality. This is a hard message for people to hear because we're not raised with the the teaching or belief that we're not good, you know? I mean, we live in a world where everything is celebrated and everything is good, but the Bible says no one is good. You know, I've told you before, the most common question that people have asked me as a pastor over the years is basically some version of this question. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? But there's a flaw in the question. You know what the flaw is? There's really no such thing as good people because we're all sinners. Now, do we do good things in our lives? Yeah. Do we have good qualities in our lives? Yeah. Is there good that can come from our lives? Yeah. Yeah. But fundamentally, the message of the scripture is that we are all sinners who are accountable to God. And again, I'll say it like this. From the most reprobate sinner to the most upright and moral lawkeeper, we are all sinners. That is the message of the scripture. And Paul drives that home in Romans chapter three. Listen to verses 10 through 18. These are all quotes from the Old Testament. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You didn't know this was going to be a feel-good message today. And then in verses 19 and 20, he goes on to say, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. No one will be declared right in the presence of God based on the things that they do. Their works and their effort. And in the end, what the law did more than anything else is it just revealed to us the reality of all of this. You really see that in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. So here's the the summary of all of it everyone is accountable to God for what he or she has done, everyone is guilty, and no one will ever be off the hook on the basis of their heritage. their good works because their heritage and their good works will never be enough and friends this is the human condition i hope everyone listening to me right now in person and online can see how desperately crucial it is that we understand this truth we are all sinners that's the thing that we all have in common and too often i think people who are on the outside of the church think that our message, the message of the church is something like this. Listen, all of you who are outside the church, all of you who are not one of us, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. When the message should really be, listen everyone everywhere, we are all sinners and if we die that way, we're all going to hell. This is the human condition And again, no spiritual heritage and no amount of good works will ever change that. No one on their own is any better than anyone else. Now, I can just imagine somebody hearing me say that and thinking, oh, you had me for a while, Pastor, but you lost me there. No one is any better than anyone else. I can just imagine someone hearing that and thinking, now, wait a minute, I don't believe that because in contrast to a lot of people, I have never, and then you just start to tick off the list of all the things you have never done, all the really bad, horrific, perverse, vile, ugly things that you have never done. Well, here's the deal. I can make a list like that myself. But I know that my list doesn't make all the bad things I've done go away, and neither does yours. And when I say bad things, I mean bad thoughts, and I mean bad attitudes, and I mean bad deeds, bad actions, and on and on and on. The Bible teaches us, we see it really clearly in Romans chapter three, that we're all sinners, that we're all accountable for ourselves, and on our own, before God, a holy God, On our own, we have no hope. And that's the human condition, friends. And that's what Paul was communicating with the church in Rome. I read the story uh, this last week about the great preacher and teacher and pastor, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was very effective in sharing the gospel with people who were not saved and what he would do, and he was the pioneer of this because many people have done this since then, but what he would do when he encountered somebody is he would use what he would call diagnostic questions to discern where someone was in their spiritual life. And once he discerned where they were in their spiritual life, he would know how to respond to them. Uh, And so the first thing he would do if he encountered somebody was try to determine whether or not they're a Christian by asking this question, this question, are you born again? Now we don't use those words on a practical level very often. idea of being born again, although it's right from the scriptures, just open up your Bible to John chapter 3 and see the conversation that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus, because it was all about this idea, this reality of being born again. You've got to be born again. And so he'd say, are you born again? And if the person could give a clear-cut testimony to the reality of their faith, the reality of being born again, then he would go ahead and minister to them from that perspective. He would speak to them and counsel them from that perspective. But if they could not, if they could not give a testimony to being born again, then this is what he would say. He would say, suppose you and I should go out of this building and a swerving automobile should come up on the sidewalk and kill the two of us. In that moment, we would be what men call dead. (laughs) We brush aside that absurd folly that we're going to meet St. Peter at the pearly gates of heaven because that only exists in jokes. We are going to meet God. Now, suppose in that moment of ultimate reckoning, God should say to you, what right, with emphasis on the word right, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you say? What would your answer be? What would be your answer? And Barnhouse would go on to say that in his encounters, he found that there were really only three answers that people would try to give to the question the first answer is uh, i because i've been good enough i've been good enough i've lived a good enough life not perfect but at the end of the day when you know checks and balances you weigh everything on the scale of good and bad i think my good outweighs the bad and so because i'm good enough but when they would give that answer barnhart barnhouse would quote to them the words of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16 that says, I know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now that's the way it reads in my New International Version Bible that I always preach from. Here's, here's how it looks in the message, which is not a, a, a translation as much as it is a paraphrase of the Bible. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be what? Good. And so he would quote those words to them from Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16. And he would try to teach them that no one, no matter how good they are, can satisfy God's perfect standard for righteousness. No one no one will be good enough to have the right to enter into God's heaven. You know, in the past, I've told you that there were times when I tried to, to share this truth with people. Uh, in a gospel presentation, I would use this illustration that's, that's, that's so old and say, just imagine you took all the people in the United States of America and you lined them up on the coast of California and gave them this one instruction, swim to Hawaii. Swim to Hawaii. You know, it's 2,500 miles from the coast of California to the Hawaiian Islands, 2,500 miles. Now, I, I looked a long time ago uh, to see who was the Guinness World, uh, Guinness World or Guinness Book World Record holder in long-distance ocean swim, and it's a man named Pablo Fernandez, and he swam a little over 155 miles, which is amazing to me. Can we all agree that that's amazing? But can we also all agree that 155 miles and 2,500 miles are like light years apart when you're in the water like that? No one can do it. No one can do it. You put me on the coast of California, you say, swim to Hawaii, and uh, I'm next to an Olympic train swimmer, and that Olympic train swimmer might be able to swim 150 ish miles like this Pablo Fernandez did. I'm going to swim 150 yards. (laughs) And you're laughing, but you might not even make it that far. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, I'm going to be thrashing in the water and doing everything I can to keep my head above the water, and I'm going to be sucking air big time with no hope, and I would know that I had no hope in that moment, and here, in the silliest part of the illustration, the guy would say, well, then imagine that setting where all these people are in the water with no hope. A giant cruise ship sails up, and the captain gets on this loudspeaker and says, free trip to Hawaii for everyone. You ask the question, then who's gonna be saved from the water? Only the people who would admit they can't make it to Hawaii on their own, and only the people who would accept the invitation of the captain. And how foolish would it be if there was somebody in that setting who was treading water who looked at the captain and said, hey, I think I'm getting my second wind. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to (laughs) pass. But this is the reality of everyone who thinks that when they stand before God that the right answer to why should, what right do you have to enter my heaven is be because I'm good enough. No one is. The second answer that Donald Gray Barnhouse said people would have is really no answer at all. It was, I don't have anything to say, nothing. And he told this story to kind of communicate what that really meant. He told the story about one summer, he crossed the Atlantic Ocean on a passenger ship, and on the first Sunday, he gathered the passengers who were interested, and he held a Sunday service for them. He preached a message to them, and he said it, was, it went really well, and several fruitful conversations happened as a result. And one was with a woman who was a very educated woman. She was a professor of languages at an Eastern university, and he asked her this question. If this ship should suffer some great catastrophe and sink to the bottom of the sea, and we died, and if when you appeared before God, he should ask you, what right do you have to come into my heaven, what would you say? And the woman said, why, I wouldn't have a thing to say. And Barnhouse replied, you may not know it, but you are quoting the words of Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. She didn't know what that meant because she didn't know The Bible. So he opened up his Bible and showed her the verse. We've actually read this verse already. I'm gonna put it up on the screen from my NIV Bible. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, note this, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And he explained to her that while in that moment, she might think that it was her decision to not say anything at all? That's really not the case. The reality is she wouldn't be able to say anything at all because at God's judgment, no one, no one will be able to offer any good things as the ground for their entrance into heaven. In other words, at the judgment, all mouths will be made mute and everyone will know as they stand before a holy God that they are guilty and deserve God's just condemnation. And the reason, of course, is because this is God's judgment. We think about... We make the mistake, and, and I have seen this so many times over the years in past, as a pastor, as I've talked to people, especially people who have doubts about God, we make the mistake oftentimes of thinking that God exists on the same level that we do. We make the mistake of not recognizing that this sovereign God, who is the creator and sustainer of all things, lives on a plane, exists on a plane in this universe that is so high and above anything that we are, understand that we can't even really comprehend the majesty of who he is is and so when we think about this kind of a of a of a, of a circumstance or a setting uh, what Barnhouse said, Is that you think about judgment in a human court of law where you appear before your peers? In other words, you appear before people who are like you, and because they're also sinful like you, you can tell your story and you can give your excuses about bad behavior, and because n- nobody's really any better than anyone else, they can end up excusing your bad behavior. But before God, every mouth will be silenced, meaning not a word will be spoken in your defense, not by you or anyone else. And then the third answer, of course, is the only right answer. And that's the answer because I put my faith and trust in Jesus. Because I know that hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. Having the privilege of entering heaven upon our death will not be on the basis of any good thing we have done or could ever do, it will be based on what Jesus has done for us and whether or not we have surrendered our lives to him in complete faith and trust. Interesting side note to this method of evangelism that Donald Gray Barnhouse was, in or was involved in is a story about several years ago, a man who had been out drinking on a Saturday night. He stumbled back to his hotel room and fell drunk into his bed the next morning, which of course was Sunday morning. He was awakened by his clock radio that was tuned to a station broadcasting a church service. And as he lay there in his bed, he heard a man speaking. And the man asked this question If in the next few minutes some great disaster should happen and you should be killed, and you found yourself standing before God, and he should ask you, What right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you say? And the man was struck by the question because he'd never heard anything like that before and because he didn't have an answer. And so he laid there in bed and he listened to the man on the radio explain the answer. Well, it turns out that man's name was D. James Kennedy who sobered up, gave his life to Christ, went to seminary, ultimately became the pastor of a church called Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And he wrote a book that detailed a method of sharing the gospel with people who were lost that was called evangelism explosion or ee for short and the gospel method of sharing uh the the, excuse me, the method of sharing the gospel called evangelism explosion begins with two diagnostic questions he he changed barnhouse's approach a little bit and the first question was Are you in a place in your life where you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? The second question was, just imagine you did die and you found yourself standing before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people over the years have been led to Christ through that evangelism explosion method that begins with those two diagnostic questions. What would your answer be? The only thing that will give sinners like you and me the opportunity to spend eternity with God in heaven is the surrender of our lives to Jesus in complete faith and trust because of who he is and because of what he did when he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And then he rose from the dead and returned to heavenly glory where he sits at the right hand of the heavenly father right now making intercession for you and me every single day. No amount of good works will be enough There are no church rituals that you can follow that will get you into heaven. It doesn't matter how religious the family you grew up in might have been. There's only one right answer to the question. What right do you have to come into my heaven? And what we need to understand is that only God has provided the solution to our human condition. Look with me again at the words that we began with. But now our righteousness from God, apart from the law, apart from our works, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. We're all sinners. We're all held accountable. Romans 321 in the easy to read version of the Bible reads like this, but God has made a way, or excuse me, but God has a way to make people right and it has nothing to do with the law. Or in other words, it has nothing to do with our works. I've always loved movies. I'm sure many of you are the same way. I've, uh, since I was a kid, I've always loved movies. I'm old enough now to, I can look back on certain kind of movie uh, characters and stories and see the different uh, versions that have happened throughout the years. For example, I can remember Uh, Back in the late 70s and early 80s, seeing all of the Superman movies that starred Christopher Reeve. How many of you remember what I'm talking about? Some of you uh, go to Redbox and see if they might have it for you. I don't know. Or stream it somewhere. I'm sure you can stream it somewhere. There was Superman, Superman 2, Superman 3, and Superman 4, Quest for Peace. Superman was released in 1978 and the sequel, Superman 2 in 1980, although a little-known fact, both movies were made at the same time because in the beginning, the plan was for there to be one long three-hour epic movie that told both the story of Superman and Superman 2, but they decided to make it two movies. Anyway, in Superman 2, and by the way, I'm gonna give you a spoiler alert, but if you're after the church thinking that you wanna find me and say, well, Pastor, I got that movie at home on VHS and I've been waiting for the right moment... Did you did you miss that VHS? I've been waiting for the right moment to uh, watch it. I'm saying, well, you need to get a life, dude. You need to just get out a little bit more. But anyway, in Superman 2, Lois Lane and Superman decide they're in love and they want to make a life together. And so, here's the catch. Superman has to give up all of his superpowers in order for that to happen. He gets this message from his mother in a hologram because she's uh, dead and she recorded all this in advance and tells him that if he wants to marry a human woman, he has to give up all of his powers. And the catch is if he gives up all of his powers, he'll never get them back again. They're gone forever. He'll never have them back. But because the heart wants what the heart wants, Superman decides he's gonna give up all of his powers and become plain old ordinary Clark Kent and marry Lois Lane. But shortly after that decision, if you remember the movie, He discovers that three evil supervillains have taken control of the White House, and that they are attempting to establish themselves over the ruler or, or uh, as the rulers over all of planet Earth. And so now more than ever, more than ever, the world needs Superman. But it's too late because he's given up all of his powers in order to marry Lewis Lane. And there's a scene in the movie where this dejected Clark Kent hikes through this raging blizzard back to where the fortress of solitude once was that is now in rubbles and in ruins. And there's a dramatic moment as he walks through the rubble where he looks up to the sky and he cries out in anguish, Father, I have failed because there's nothing he can do to save the earth. But then all of a sudden in the movie, the scene changes from the former fortress of solitude to the city of Metropolis where Clark Kent lives as a reporter for the Daily Planet, where Lois. Lane also works for the Daily Planet, and the supervillains villain, are there, they're wreaking havoc, they're terrorizing the people, and it looks like there's no hope, and then you hear that familiar Superman music begin in the background. And someone says, how many of you remember this? It's a bird. <laughs> it's a plane. <laughs> no, it's Superman. And there he is, and he has all of his powers restored. He has all of his powers restored. He's back. He's regained his superpowers. And he defeats the villains, saves the world, and truth, justice, and the American way end uh, end up winning in the end. But the question is, how did it happen? How did Superman get his powers back? Well, if you do a little digging, you discover that he gets his powers back because the writers of the movie the creators of the movie, added a backstory that gave them the opportunity to change the rules and let Superman off the hook. We've all failed when it comes to living completely righteous lives, which means we all deserve an eternity of complete separation from God. That's what all of us deserve on our own. But the good news of the gospel is that God, by his grace... Changed the rules when he sent his son Jesus into the world to die on the cross in your place and mine. And be punished in your place and mine for our sin, to be beaten and brutalized and tortured and murdered on a cross in our place to satisfy his need for justice with regard to sin. And if you put your faith and trust in him, your sin can be forgiven. And you can receive the promise of the eternal life. And if God ever asks you the question, what right do you have to enter into my heaven? You have the answer. Because my faith and my trust is in Jesus. That's the grace of God. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. And this grace that God gives us is immeasurably good. I look at my Bible at the end of Romans 3 and I would say here, these three things about grace. It's big, first of all. Grace is big. Romans 3, 22 through 24 in the easy to read version says God makes people right through their faith in Jesus Christ. He does this for all who believe in Christ. Everyone is the same. All have sinned and are not good enough to share divine uh, God's divine greatness. But this grace is big enough to overcome all of that. It's free, Romans three twenty three and 24. All have sinned and are not good enough to share God's divine greatness. They are made right with God by his grace. This is a free gift. They are made right with God, so being made free from sin. They, excuse me, this is a free gift. They are made right with God by being made free from sin through Jesus Christ. I'm having a hard time reading for some reason. And the third thing I would say is about this grace in Romans 3 is that it's strong. Romans 3, 31 says, so, we, so do we destroy the law by following the way of faith? Not at all. In fact, faith causes us to be what the law actually wants. Grace is big and it's free and it's strong and it's all anyone needs. So I'm gonna ask you again. You sent, if you found yourself standing before God If if somehow after church, when we left church today, some horrific accident happened and you died and you found yourself standing before God and he looked at you and he said, what right do you have to enter my heaven? What would be be your answer? The only answer is to admit you're a sinner to believe in Jesus. And when I say believe in Jesus, I'm not talking about an intellectual acknowledgement or intellectual assent I'm talking about complete faith, complete surrender, complete trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for you. Confess that belief in Jesus demonstrate that belief through genuine repentance the turning away from sin and turning to God and express that belief the way the Bible commands you to express it through baptism which is a sign or a picture of being united with Jesus in his death and his burial and his resurrection to a new life that's the only answer to put your faith and trust in Jesus and so if he asks you what right do you have to come into my heaven Honestly, today, right now, what would be your answer?